Hello, and welcome back to What the Health. I'm your host, Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent at Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're here to bring you the latest in news about health policy from the White House, Capitol Hill, federal agencies, and the states. Although this week will be a little different, as I'll explain in a minute. We're taping early this week for Thanksgiving at 12.30 on Tuesday, November 21st. As with all news in Washington, things can change fast, and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So let's get to it. Today we're joined by Joanne Cannon of Politico. Hello, everybody. Happy Thanksgiving. Alice Olstein of Talking Points Memo. Hello. And making her debut on the podcast, my KHN colleague, Sarah Jane Tribble. Sarah covers drug price issues. Good to be here. So we're doing something a little different this holiday week. I'm calling it the dogs that aren't barking, or they're barking, but it's getting drowned out by bigger news. Uh, Specifically, I want to talk about important health stories that aren't the repeal of the Affordable Care Act, open enrollment, or the Children's Health Insurance Program. So let's start with prescription drug prices, which is why we brought you, Sarah. Um, There's actually a fair bit of stuff going on, although not so much around President Trump's promise to force drug prices down. I mean, has anybody seen any evidence of the president besides sort of a little bit of bluster? When you look at the the track record of the administration at this point, they are putting out proposals that will possibly decrease the amount you're paying at point of sale, so to speak, at the counter when you're buying your prescription drugs. But I think everybody agrees that none of them actually address the root cause of the problem, the actual price of the prescription drugs. So that shifts the cost. If the if you spend less at the drugstore or your mail order or wherever, you end up spending more in your premiums or somebody else is spending more because you're spending less. So it's not the price of drugs. It is some people will have less out-of-pocket spending. Secretary nominee comes from a drug company. Yeah, Lily USA. <laughs> that was investigated for drug price issues. Uh, on insulin, right? Yeah. Yeah. And there's still many lawsuits on insulin prices that, uh, you know, there's three major pharmaceutical companies that are in control of insulin prices in the U.S. And there's lots of, you know, people looking into that issue. So I want to zero in on a couple of of drug price issues themselves. And the first one is the 340B program, which is not as boring as that name sounds. So Sarah, (laughs) tell us what this program does and why it's in the news right now. Okay, it's named after the provision of the the law that created in the Public Health Services Act, right? So this is a a provision that was created in 1992. It's been around for decades. Congress actually expanded this program three times um, since 92 in 03, 05, and uh, the most recently under the Affordable Care Act in 2010. And this program basically gives certain hospitals a break on what they have to pay the pharmaceutical companies for their prescription drugs. And what uh, CMS recently did, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services recently did, is they came out and said, we're going to decrease the reimbursement that we're giving you for these Medicare Part B drugs, the drugs that you can get outpatient out of the hospital. We're going to decrease it for these hospitals that are enrolled in this program because you're making too much money off of 340B. And it's kind of complicated. And just stop me if I go into too much detail, but basically the hospitals make money off the spread between what they buy the pharmaceuticals for from the manufacturers and what Medicare is reimbursing them for. So what Medicare has done now is said, we're going to reimburse you less, so you make less of a spread. The hospitals are up in arms about this. They filed a lawsuit about this. And it's not just hospitals. It's community health centers are in, or get three, four. I mean, it's, it's basically everybody. It's 
facilities that serve people with low incomes? Is that a fair way to describe who gets the 340B, who's part of the 340B program? Yeah, the 340B program includes, like the Ryan White Clinic, Black Lung Clinics, it includes community health centers. However, this decrease in Medicare reimbursement doesn't include those community centers. It's really focused on the hospitals. It's a huge fight between two big sectors, the hospitals versus the pharmaceuticals. And um, basically, you know, we don't, I mean, we used to not see these kind of matches. Um, in the last few years, over drug prices, we've seen the insurers versus the drug companies, and now we're seeing the hospitals versus the drug companies. The hospitals are saying, you know, you're just mad because, you know, you could make more money if we didn't weren't in this program, and the drug companies are saying these discounts are, you know, they're game. The hospitals are gaming the system and making money off of it. So huge lobbying, huge advertising. Huge. I mean, who saw an ad about 340B? You know, and I'm not sure who reads an ad about 340B, but but there are ads. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it's a big K Street uh, lobbying brouhaha. Well, it was actually a political reporter, David Pittman, who wrote a story about. I think it was 48 million dollars spent over three months on lobbying from many different groups, including pharma and other other uh, groups about this 340B issue. And it's a very dramatic story about a program most people know, don't know what it was. It was a great story. I mean, this is huge and very rapidly developing, huge, expensive messaging lobbying fight over. I would actually push back on that. I don't think it's rapidly developing. I think that this messaging has been developing for the last year, at least. Right. But in the last couple of months, this has really boiled up. I mean, and the lawsuits and the, I mean, I can tell by my inbox. It's, <laughs> yeah, it's definitely. I can, yeah, I can tell by my inbox, too. Well, and the reason, though, is because because of the money at stake, you know, pharma is uh, is well aware, and you know, there's been congressional, you know, studies on this. MedPAC has studied it. The number of hospitals involved in this program is now forty um, percent of hospitals in the U.S. And uh, and that's a tremendous amount of money. Billions of dollars are at stake in drug prices. And it's a time, and the, the number of hospitals has been soaring as uninsured. I mean, we still have uninsured people in the United States, but it has dropped. So the, the you know the the pharma saying, you know, why is this growing when? And look, there's, it's not as if this program doesn't have problems and flaws. It does. I think everybody on both sides of this fight admit that there's some oversight issues. There's things that need to be addressed with the program. But the hospitals are crying out. If you decrease that funding across the board, then what we're going to have is hospitals cutting services, cutting transportation services. I was talking to Metro Health Center in Cleveland. I think a lot of people may or may not know I came from the Cleveland Plain Dealer and uh, way back when. And so I, was, I called them $8 million cut in their budget because of the 340B cut. That's what they were anticipating. So hospitals are crying out about this. Um, and I'm sure this will continue on. In the meantime, there's also drug uh, drug issue in the tax bill. We've talked about other things in the tax bill, about the obviously the individual mandate repeal and about the uh, the medical expense deduction. But there's, there's a drug tax issue in the tax bill too, right? I love covering the most simple of topics. Um, <laughs> but let me connect both of these with something you said a little bit earlier before I start talking about the orphan drug tax credit. And that is both of these don't address, again, the root cause of the drug prices. These are kind of a distraction point. They address other things about drug pricing. Um, so I, just to lay Well, that's that what I there. wanted to establish early on, that there's not very much happening about drug pricing. <laughs> just we're having all these drug price fights. Right. So the orphan drug tax credit is on drugs that are for rare disease drugs. And what it does is it gives companies that develop rare disease drugs, which is uh, if the FDA approves you for less than 200,000 people, um, a disease that has less than 200,000 people, leukemia drugs are often in there. Lots of cancer drugs fall into that, but like Duchenne's and so, um, other genetic uh, disorders that, that crop up. So the companies that can 
develop these drugs get a 50% tax credit on their clinical testing here in the U.S., on human clinical testing in the U.S. It's been a boon for the industry. Um, you know, James Love with Knowledge Economy International had a chart that he sent to me. And the year that it got delayed in approval, this tax credit, there was a, a drastic drop. Like you could see um, the fever chart line drop on that. <laughs> so, you know, what the, the, you know, NOR, the big association for rare disorders, says is that there, you're going to see a 33% drop in development of these drugs. Um, so the House eliminated it altogether in their proposed tax bill. And the Senate at first eliminated it at 50 percent. It was a very complicated formula. And they also said, well, if you're a drug that already exists and you're getting kind of redeveloped for a rare disease drug, you shouldn't get the tax credit at all. That was the first installment of the Senate proposal. Then the second one, by late Thursday, they had altered that to say, OK, we're just going to cut that down by 27.5 percent. You can't get more of a credit than that. And it was for anybody who developed one of these rare disease drugs. So it, this is kind of an evolving, evolving discussion, if you will. But it's, it's yet another potential complication for the tax bill, which obviously has complications. Yeah, I don't know how important this is in the overall tax bill. I'm not sure it's going to be a fighting point. It certainly is a big fighting point for the advocates who care about rare disease drugs. Pharma itself, the big lobbying firm, has kind of stayed out of this. When I um, talked to them, they were kind of like, you know, it's a ta- we, we have many considerations in this tax bill. But Bio, the other uh, lobbying firm that represents the biomedical companies, they've come out and... And do most of the cancer drugs. <laughs> and they have a lot of the cancer drugs. These are high-cost drugs, right? Um, and uh, they have taken a stance and said they're working with Hatch, uh, Senator Hatch, on this. So, Yeah, I guess it doesn't hurt that the, the, the chairman of the Senate Finance Committee is one of the people who, who worked on this tax credit when it was created. Yeah, well, and what's interesting, though, is, you know, Hatch has always been seen as a, you know, and he is an advocate for the rare disease drug development space. But over the years, if you go back in history to the 80s, he actually has proposed changes to the Orphan Drug Act, like such as, you know, doubling up the exclusivity periods for companies and so forth. So he does, you know, he he has analyzed this issue. So I'm very curious to kind of watch him and see what comes out of the Senate Finance Committee. And and before we leave drugs entirely, I want to talk about opioids because we haven't in a couple of weeks. I mean, we had the the final report from the the president's opioid commission. There um there does does not seem to be a lot happening, is there? Well, there's um some of the advocates were hoping uh, I would say without a, a lot of reason to hope, but hoping that some opioid money might go on to the uh, emergency, the hurricane emergency supplemental spending bill that went through this week. That didn't happen. Um, there is the opportunity to put some money on the the big end of the year spending bill that we keep talking about, which has, you know, I don't know how many things listed that have to go on that bill, but it's somewhere over eight, eight zillion or whatever. Um, you know, so there could be something there. I mean, we do not have a secretary of HHS. They are trying to get Alex Azar through quickly. It may become a priority of his, you know, that if the president has said he wants to do something, he mentioned it again yesterday, you know, whether the policies will start gelling when somebody is in charge of the department, but there's nobody in charge. Of the, I mean, there's interim people, but there's not a drug czar. There's not a DEA person. There's not an HHS person. Um, CDC is fairly new, although there is a CDC person. I mean, it's it's it, to try to make big policy changes with interim people is hard to do. But the, the advocates are not happy that this big splash, you know, Trump declared a public health emergency. The Christie Commission made his recommendations, and then nothing happened. It's only been a few weeks, but nothing has happened. But I mean, it's true. Congress, you know, Congress seems to be busy with the tax bill and right. not very much else. No, they've done basically nothing on the opioid issue this year. It's it's not even really a main topic of discussion, let alone action. 
So. Yeah, I did see an email this morning from um, Gottlieb's office over at uh, the Got FDA uh, saying that they were going to try to encourage more development of generic drugs, which is just along the line of the generic FDA, opioids. Right? Yeah, generic opioid drugs along the lines of let's just push that competition. Let's get more drugs out there. So um, there is something. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's somebody home at FDA. But as Joanne points out, there's not there's not a lot of people at home in a lot of the other places. Um, all right. Well, that that's drugs. I also want to talk a little bit about reproductive health because, again, we haven't talked about it in some weeks. Um, Massachusetts yesterday became the first state to guarantee no-cost birth control coverage since the Trump administration moved to eliminate it last month. I can't believe it was only last month. Um, what does the Massachusetts bill do? It basically does what the ACA did before Trump um, rolled back that regulation, which is um, employer health plans have to cover um, you know, most FDA-approved con- they have to They don't have to do every single brand of every single drug, but you have to cover birth control for in your employer health plan, and it, the woman doesn't have to pay anything for it. So uh, there is also lawsuits about this. I, I forgot how many states, six or seven, I think. There's so many lawsuits, it's hard to keep track of which states are on which one. I think on the contraceptive one, it's six or seven Democratic states. Um, you know, Oregon has also done some legislation. I think New York has something that doesn't go as far as Massachusetts. Um, in Oregon also has over-the-counter birth control, which I is... I think yet California a, yet might as well. Yeah, California does too. I can't remember. I think they... But it's not free. Right. I mean, it's more which convenient. Is a, you don't have to go issue. to the doctor. There, there's pros and... I mean, the activists and advocates have you know, pros and cons about these various proposals. Um, the... the uh, You know, I think we'll see... You know, the, but if states can get it through the legislature, um, I think we will see more of them do this. But then you do get into these conscious clause and fights about religious objections and who doesn't have to do it. And we do have a Supreme Court ruling on Hobby Lobby. So there are in every state, I think there will be another wave of fighting about exemptions. I'm just, you know, one of the things that I wanted to ask the panel about is in Massachusetts, you can get a whole year worth at a time, I believe. If I I read that correctly yesterday, as I read it fairly fast, I think you can get, uh, you know, 12 months. So the president comes in and obviously with, you know, a mixed uh, uh, record of what he said about reproductive health, but he's, he had the support of the, the, the pro-life community. He brings in Mike Pence, who's obviously, you know, one of their heroes. Mike Pence then brings in, there are lots of people at the Department of Health and Human Services with, and, and at the White House with extremely strong anti-abortion credentials and many of them also anti-family planning credentials. And yet it is Thanksgiving Planned Parenthood is still being funded. Um, they have not, you know, there was a there was a, a very controversial conscious regulation um, at the end of the the George W. Bush administration, at the very tail end that the Obama administration overturned. But I'm surprised that that hasn't been reinstituted. It's been talked about, but I haven't seen it. I mean, basically, Mexico City was reinstituted and made broader. Yes, that's it, true. It's, it's a, Mexico City was rein, which is this international family planning gag rule, um, and it was not just can you not. It, it is a it is a more sweeping version under the Trump administration than it was in the prior Republican administration. That's true. Well, that that on the international family planning side, that but 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 that was. I mean, you can you really can count on one hand the things that that this administration has done, which frankly kind of surprises me. I mean, well, I think the birth the birth control um, mandate um, under insurance 
could be really huge. I, we were sort of waiting to see the full repercussions of that decision. And obviously, it's going to be tied up in the courts for a long time to come. But it, it, that could potentially be a, a really major act that, that leads to a lot fewer people having access to family planning. And I think a key thing you just said was tied up in the courts. When you look at kind of the long-term trajectory of the Trump administration and the courts and what they're doing to put in conservative judges across many spectrums of the court system, perhaps, you know, there's a long game involved here when it comes to um, conservative issues such as birth control. Well, the long game is the Supreme Court. And we, uh, you know, Trump probably expects to appoint one more, at least one more person. And Mm -hmm. he's already this week, he put out a few more names of his his wish list. And, um, you know, right now they're all healthy, but a number of them are 80-ish. And... uh, People don't live forever. I mean, that's being openly discussed uh, in this town. Who, who, you know, mm-hmm. how many people, who, you know, that could change overnight, as we learned with Scalia, right? Yeah. Well, and, but, and that, that's the imp- I mean, that's why everybody is so freaked out about this Alabama Senate mm-hmm. race, because, you know, you need that. That would be going. That's not the only reason. Well, that, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but that it's a main. I mean, that's one of the reasons that I keep hearing that people are, you know, very concerned about the Republicans keeping their majority. Um but it's also one reason that people in Alabama will vote for him. Why the evangelicals are supporting um, a candidate that some of them may have some questions about. It's, you know, for them, the abortion is really, really, really important. And for them, for some of the people who will vote for more in, in, in Alabama will be because that's their number one moral and political concern. And I think it's interesting that even in a state like that, the Democratic Party has moved so much more toward the progressive end of the spectrum on this issue that even in Alabama, the Democratic candidate is running as openly pro-choice um, when you might not have seen that even just a few years ago. No, that's that's actually... I, and it might be why he doesn't win. I mean, we don't know what's going to happen <laughs> yeah, in that race. But, we don't you know, know if there's going to be an election. We don't. There's a lot of things The governor said there know. will be an election and she's voting for Roy Moore. So right. there so, you go. But I think that the, the, the choice issue is huge in that state. And um, and others, right? But I, th- I think that a, pro- a pro-abortion rights Democrat, uh, in some ways, is somewhat counterintuitive. You would have thought maybe they would have come up with someone to look more like Mansion on abortion. Yes, we haven't seen any. We haven't seen a pro-choice Democratic candidate in the South. I'm trying to remember since when. Um, Kate Hagan. Mm, yes, she was um, Kay Hagan in she North lost. Carolina, and she lost. Yeah, <laughs> well, she lost re-election, and North Carolina is not as conservative a state. Yeah, I wasn't really. Even wasn't thinking, then. <laughs> I wasn't thinking of North Carolina so it's much. A swing as sort state of the, now, the, the deep right. south. Um, but but there, you know, there we've seen some of these memos where the administration is looking at sort of you know extending uh, the you know the the idea of, of making. Giving personhood to fetuses actually, there's something in the tax bill. I think for, I think you can start saving for college before, um, while 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 the child is still in utero. Um, I don't I don't think that that's the you can actually Which take I've, a deduction yet. There's a problem because that, of your social security. You know, you need a social security number, right? right. And currently, you can open one of those accounts under the parent's name and transfer it to the child's name once the child is born. And so it's it's more symbolic. They than actually else. aren't in the child's name. They're in the. I mean, I have yeah, right. They're in the right. parents name to the for the benefit of somebody. But you're that, you're that still the a, account owner. I'm the right, account but owner. in the tax bill, having it in the name of the fetus is purely symbolic, since you can essentially open it while you're pregnant, anyways. But that was exactly my point, which is that they're doing symbolic stuff. It seems rather. I mean, well, but that, sure, that, well, but that one is there's could lay the legal groundwork. issues. I mean, mm-hmm. that one is not. It, it's symbolic, 
Um, but it's also because they are trying to attach legal rights right. to a fetus, and that's related to the personhood movement. Yes. And so there's, it's symbolic, but it's part of a legal edifice they're trying to build. Yeah, and and, and it's funny because the personhood, I mean, it got voted on in a couple of states, including Alabama, actually. Was it Alabama or Mississippi? Mississippi. It was Mississippi, excuse me. And it went down. And it's I think it's gone down twice in Colorado. This is the, the idea of extending legal rights to fetuses, which would not only ban abortion, you know, all kinds of abortion, but as people have pointed out, it would make in vitro fertilization problematic, if not illegal. I mean, it would do, it would, it would have really enormous ramifications, which is why after campaigns, people and voters in very conservative states said, we're not quite ready for this yet. So I think North Dakota, I forgot it was North Dakota, Nebraska. I think it was North Dakota. It failed there as well. Yeah. Yeah. yeah there, it, it's been, but, but, but you can see these sort of, there, there's a, there's an HHS memo that talks about this too, um, that, that, that there's, you're right. I think there's a lot of long game going on, um, since they seem to be having trouble with the short game. Um, and I, I promise we weren't going to talk about the Affordable Care Act, but I can't resist. <laughs> I mean, just one thing to mention. It seems that over the weekend, the, the latest Republican talking point that we heard among the moderate holdouts is that they might vote for the repeal of the individual mandate as part of the tax bill if Congress passes the Alexander Murray bill that we've talked about a lot that would re- restore the cost sharing subsidies the president canceled. And and possibly reinstitute reinsurance to, that could help bring down some some premiums. But the question is whether stabilizing in the individual market of the Alexander Murray bill or something like it would not help how much the market would be undercut by repealing the individual mandate. I mean, well, there's there's right. dispute over the impact of the mandate because the people who are paying the fine are already paying the fine. So how many more? I mean, CBO said 13 million over 10 years. Some other reputable analysts are saying they don't think it, it will have that impact, that, that the subsidies will keep people in the market and the people who are paying the penalty are already paying the penalty and that they don't think it'll change as much. So it's somewhat, you know, as always, you know, and we also don't know what's going to happen to the insurers, as we've said in the past. Are they going to stay in or is this the last straw and they'll, they'll run away? Um, so the, there's questions about the how devastating the man cutting the mandate would be. Um, I don't think there are many people who think the Murray Alexander bill would compensate for even a reduced impact of the mandate. That one of them is more dangerous than the other is helpful if you're interested in stabilizing the market. But I don't. Th- I think you know it's really really important to note that Mick Mulvaney said over the weekend that you know it's not a do or die on, which I was surprised to hear it at this point. A, a head, lot of right? administration people started inching away. You had Mnuchin say something similar, and Gary Cohen saying, "Well, if it's going to threaten the entire tax right. bill, they we want don't a, need the, the tax the bill is not a sure thing. It got through, it sailed through the House, but that's still the first draft, right? It has to get sailed through, through the, the House without the mandate repeal, right? And it's it, that's not that's more of an issue in the Senate, the mandate repeal, but it sailed through the House. Without the mandate repeal, the Senate is not a particularly sally throughy place these days. <laughs> um, and they want to do this really fast. They want fast. to do it fast. So, and how can you 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 can't get Murray Alexander before, through before you do taxes? And even if you get Murray Alexander through the Senate, you're not at all sure you can get it through the House. So Very I don't think unlikely, they're going to be yeah. wedded in any true in a more than a rhetorical way. And the other confusion, of course, about Murray Alexander now is that now that the states have made up for all the um, the, the changes, you know, the, the lack of the cost sharing reductions, we've, we've got this, you know, sort of plans on sale thing. So we're seeing, I mean, one of the reasons most analysts say that we're seeing 
we're not seeing booming enrollment, but that we're seeing brisk enrollment is that people are discovering that they can get free bronze plans or they can get gold plans at a really big discount. Of course, it's costing the federal government more. But right. um, but if you were to put them back, you would shake up the market again. And there, I think most analysts are saying that putting them back at this point may be not such a great idea. Right. right. But if you have the President Trump has been out there tweeting and talking about wanting the mandate in and really pushing and on the phone with lawmakers saying, I really want to do this. You know, now is our time. Here's the perfect opportunity. Go, go, go. And then you have his the head of his budget office, part of the Plain White House, <laughs> coming out and saying, yeah, and, and a very conservative OMB chief. I mean, Mulvaney is not exactly a fan of the Affordable Care Act nor of the individual mandate. And for him to come out, you know, when Congress isn't even in town, they're not even wrestling really with it this week. They're gone for Thanksgiving. Well, nothing matters to them more than getting their tax cuts. Yeah, but <laughs> the fact, you know, he really said, if it's a problem, we'll drop it. Well, so another we're thing, not so sure it'll be around next week. Sure. And another thing with the effectiveness of the mandate is that the penalty was uh, in the minds of insurers and many experts never big enough to be as effective right. as it was originally intended to be. So um, it, it right now it's less than a lot of insurance plans. And so, it, I mean, you could even pay the penalty and get sort of a, a side skimpy plan for less than than you would get for buying a full plan. And Which a lot of people are doing. Exactly. And there's a lot more exemption categories of exemptions that, that you can get away with not having insurance currently, hard, hardship exemptions. Um, but yeah, no, tr- somehow trading or combining Alexander Murray with the mandate repeal, uh, Murray herself, uh, Senator Patty Murray, compared it to pouring penicillin on a fire in that <laughs> you're treating one problem with a solution for a completely different problem, which doesn't make sense because the cost-sharing reductions only target the plans that involve that, whereas the mandate repeal impacts all plans, both in the individual market and outside. Yeah, but on the individual both in mandate. the exchanges and outside. Right, right. Every all the plans in the individual market. Correct. Doesn't it doesn't impact um, most? Well, I guess in theory. Well, there's the employer, employer mandate, plans. which yeah. is separate, separate and yeah. another battle. <laughs> How much of talking about the individual mandate and repealing it, just talking about it, is is a way? Um, and I'm just curious about this. Is a way of just keeping the base motivated and interested in these discussions, and so it just doesn't become old hat to see DC fighting about it, but they get really excited. Oh, you could repeal the individual mandate. But and I think there's a base. But I think really... there's a double-edged sword because on one hand, you're telling them your base, we're still working on this. And the other mm-hmm. way, the base is saying, yeah, we're still about uh, it. You're accomplishing things. Yeah. <laughs> it's not happening. So in, did you have to put it on the tax? I don't think they put it on the tax bill. I mean, I think they put it on the tax bill for political reasons, but they put it on the tax bill more for financial reasons. It was $338 billion that helped offset their tax cuts. Yeah, I feel like mm-hmm. it's Lucy and Charlie Brown and the football all over again. So keep <laughs> yeah. putting it out there and snatching it away. I don't know how much that... I mean, yeah, I, I, I think that's why the president keeps talking about it. It's like, we're still working on this, mm-hmm. but but I don't think that, that talking about it and not doing it gets you uh, anywhere with the base other than making them more irritated. Because the, the message in 2018 if they want to continue hitting the repeal as a big message for the voters rather than sort of beginning to soft pedal away from it and talk about the great tax bill they just passed if they pass it, um, would have to be, well, we need even more senators because we have a few rhinos. So you need to elect more Republicans, you know. You should explain rhino for, for the few people, people who don't know it. People who are not, you know, Republicans in name only, moderates. So <laughs> the, the message to the base will be you got to get some more Republicans, real Republicans who are going to come and repeal this with us. So that would have to be... Um, it, it will switch. I, I don't think we're hearing the end of it legislatively. I don't think we'll ever hear the end of it legislatively. But I think it also becomes a different kind of political talking point as we head into 2018. 
Do you think if they if they don't do it, which looks probably more likely than not, that that the president then just does it by expanding all those hardship exemptions to the point that that there, nobody basically has to buy insurance anymore? There were reports uh, that the OMB and, and the White House are looking into that. So it, it's not yet known. I, I think that they would prefer that Congress do it because then it's, you know, on solid legal grounds. But I think and again, <laughs> they have enough lawsuits add, to deal add with another lawsuit on the fire, <laughs> throw another log on the fire, lawsuit fire um, and then put it out with penicillin. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> penicillin flambe. <laughs> Isn't that Yum. the best analogy? I, I love that. I just loved it. Um, but yes, no, I, I think they're waiting. I think the president is waiting to see if it's possible for Congress to get it done, which currently it does maybe not appear to be so. We've seen that when it comes to health policy, it just gets so bogged down. It tough. looked more likely last week than it does this yep. week. Yep. No, and, and certainly next week will will be kind of, one would think, a make or break week with the tax bill. But first, Thanksgiving. Um, so let's wrap up with the segment we call Extra Credit. That's where each of us recommends a story they read recently that they think everyone else should read too. Don't worry if you miss it. We will post the links to these pieces on the Kaiser Health News site, khn.org. Who wants to start? Sarah. I can start, although it's a story from a few weeks ago in the Washington Post, um, in part because it is Thanksgiving week and we have time to sit down and enjoy a good story. I'm going to recommend Chasing a Killer, which was by Lena Sun um, with beautiful pictures uh, accompanying it um, by Melina Mora. And um, it's about CDC scientists. They got to tag along into the Congo. The Congolese government uh, approved this trip and they got to tag along and watch these scientists at work trying to track down the uh, the, the beginning of the monkeypox, which is a, a very scary, deadly disease that has been spreading. They even give some examples in the U.S. from a few years ago in the story. So it makes you really kind of interested right on. And then there's just these beautiful imagery, both in the pictures and in the writing. I highly recommend finding the time to sit down and just relax and enjoy it and, and feel positive about what our scientists are working on. <laughs> I assume nobody's having monkey for Thanksgiving. <laughs> Alice. Um, I'm going to stick to my brand of, of promoting uh, extremely disgusting, interesting stories. Uh, I was fascinated by this report. Uh, I think several outlets had it, but I read it in the Washington Post about a defector from North Korea who made it into South Korea. And while he was getting treatment for gunshot wounds because he was shot crossing the DMZ, which is very common, um, they went into his intestines and found all kinds of horrible parasites. And because oh. so little information about how people are living in North Korea, what food they have access to, what medicine they have access to, um, what, what their agriculture system is like, this was this incredible window into some of that information. And they, they're thinking, um, I think it's especially relevant right now as uh, all these international sanctions that are even more strict than the ones currently in place are being discussed and thinking about how that is impacting North Korea's civilian population, which is already a lot of them are starving and living in very unsanitary conditions, which was sort of confirmed by by this poor man's the, guts. The 11-inch long parasites. They weren't just yes. gross parasites. They were big, Nearly gross Nearly a foot-long right. round worm in this guy's intestines, yeah. if you really want to know. Long-term problems okay. there. Okay. Right. Joanne. Yum. There was a piece in the New York Times by Katie Hafner and Griffin Palmer called Skin Cancer Rise... Um, along with questionable treatments. And it was a really, really disturbing piece about dermatology. Like, we don't think of the dermatology as, like, trouble spot in healthcare, but this piece convinced me it was. Um, an 
overdiagnosis and really, really aggressive treatments, radiation and surgery and Mohs surgery, which is really elaborate and expensive, on, on things that aren't going to kill you in older patients. And at the same time as these, um, these practices, um, many of which were being done by physician assistants and nurse practitioners rather than dermatologists, the, the MD dermatologists themselves, at the same time as they were doing these multiple, you know, 12 biopsies on the harmless stuff, they were missing the melanomas. So it, it, it was over-treatment, really aggressive, expensive over-treatment, and people, including the elderly, who the risk of complications from unnecessary, even, out, you know, unnecessary minor procedures, um, um, so it was cost, it was pain, it was complications. And if you're treating the unimportant one and missing the important one, I mean, melanoma can kill you. Great. Well, mine is also kind of depressing. Um, and it's also from the Washington Post, although it's written by one of my KHN colleagues, Melissa Bailey. Um, it's called Ambulance Trips Can Leave You With Surprising and Very Expensive Bills. And it's really kind of terrifying. It turns out that private ambulance companies that are often the ones that respond when you call 911 can charge essentially whatever they want because they don't usually contract with insurance companies because they want more money the insurance companies are willing to pay. And so even patients who have good insurance can still end up with bills that total thousands of dollars for very short rides. In one case in the story, a woman in a car accident got charged $26,400 for a trauma activation fee at the hospital after the ambulance called ahead to assemble a trauma team, which it turned out the woman didn't even actually need. Um, it's, a, it's a really amazing story. And as, as one of my other colleagues pointed out, it's like, if you're not afraid of enough in the healthcare system now, people are going to be afraid to get into ambulances. Um, so at least it will give you something to talk about at the Thanksgiving table that's not politics. Uh, that is it for today. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcast. We'd also appreciate it if you left a review. That will help other people find us, too. If you have your own comments, you can email us. We're at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org, or you can tweet me. I'm at Jay Rovner. I'm at Joanne Kennan. I'm at Alice Olstein. At SJ Tribble. We'll be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, have a great holiday and be healthy.